Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Galatians chapter 5. While you're turning to Galatians chapter 5, just want to say thank you to all of you who were helping out at the NIPS yesterday. And thank you for Ben for leading that up. Uh, I was at the sing-along practice, which is another announcement, I guess, uh, for those that you would want to come and hear some Christmas music. Uh, Trinity's sing-along is happening December 15th at 7 p.m. Uh, 7 p.m. and uh, the Loomises are helping out too. So if you want to see the Loomises play the trumpet and uh, and the trombone, actually I think they'll be playing here next week, Lord willing, too. Um, so that's happening then. Uh, but your pastors and your elders are very thankful for your help to care for the Nips, uh, not just yesterday, but ongoing. And as you continue to Think about them and keep them in your hearts. We would just ask that you would, would keep them in your hearts as you continue to go forward. We're thankful for your prayers and for your care for them. And if you can think of any way to serve them, please do so. Uh, today we'll be starting in Galatians chapter 5. We're officially two-thirds of the way done with Galatians. And today's section is one of the most foundational parts really of the Christian faith. And it might be one of the easier sections of Galatians to understand. It might be one of the easier ones to technically preach. You know, some places have taken us longer or taken us a little more background. You know, like discussing Sarah and Hagar, discussing covenants made with Abraham or Moses. But today... We begin chapter 5, and Paul is telling us how to live if we are children of the free woman, like he said at the end of chapter 4, okay? So if you're you're a child of the free woman and not the slave, like Esteban talked about last week, then how are you to live? And though this section may be one of the more straightforward sections, it's probably the one that I'm most nervous about for our entire time through Galatians. Because it's of such great importance that if you don't get this this morning, then everything that Esteban and I have taught you through 1 and 4 has been a waste. If this doesn't land home for you with crystal clarity, then Esteban and I have wasted months preaching to you because you may understand more about the covenants a little bit. You may understand more about predestination, more about circumcision and what it means, uh, more about Sarah, more about the background, facing the Galatians. But if you don't get this this morning, then all of that is meaningless. And I know that pastors kind of use hyperbole sometimes to make, you know, like this is the most important thing. If you read Andrew Murray ever, it's like whatever book Andrew Murray is writing, it's like he just talks like this is the most important thing for Christians to get. It's like, but you just said in the other book, this is the most important thing for you to get, Andrew. Uh, His books are great. You should read Andrew Murray on humility. It's wonderful. But you will see that if you start reading his stuff. It's like this is the most important. But really, this is one of the most important doctrines of your life. 
If you do not get this, then your entire life lived before God will not be lived the way that it's supposed to be. And so, in a sense, I feel the weight of what Paul is saying when he's writing this letter. See, in in this chapter, Paul, he's giving his final appeal, his final plea to the Galatians in an effort to persuade them to give up the false doctrines that they've been being taught by these wicked men and instead to believe the gospel that he taught them when he was with them. And he's throwing everything he can now, the promises, threats, he's throwing them out to help them keep their doctrine pure to make an appeal to them. And think if you were... Let's figure out where to get this mic. Think about if you were writing a letter to your children and your children were in great harm because of something that they were believing and you were making a plea to them in your letter to them to not go this way but to go this way. And you knew if they went this way it was going to mean great harm for them. And you're finishing up your letter to them. Well, you're going to throw everything and make every plea that you can for them to change and for them to listen to you. And that's what's starting to happen here as Paul's starting to close down the letter. So let's read, starting in verse 1. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. It's a pretty big threat. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I would ask that your spirit would help us this morning to understand your word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. These words are precious and they're life-giving truths, and these truths help us live a Christian life in the way that you designed it for us. Without this truth, our joy in the Christian life is missing. The vibrancy with our relationship with you is missing. Hope is missing. Without this truth that we're talking about this morning, all the biblical knowledge that we have, that we've accumulated over these years, all of it is useless. And so, Father, please help us this morning. Be merciful to your children. You always have been, and you continue to do so, and so we expect this morning... And we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. So Paul is saying to the Galatians, look, you're not a child of the slave, but of the free woman. And then he says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit to a yoke of slavery. So the question is, obviously, well, what is this freedom? Is Paul talking about the freedom that our country enjoys? the land of the free and the home of the brave. You hear about freedom around Independence Day or when you're in a history class at school. Is that the type of freedom that Paul's referring to? No. It's not political freedom that Paul's referring to when he says it's, it's freedom, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. 
Okay, then what is it? Is, is it freedom that the world speaks of? You're free to do whatever you want. Whatever pleases you, whatever makes you feel good, you can do it. This is America. If you consent to it and another person consents to it, you're free. Go ahead. Is that the type of freedom that Paul's talking about? Of course not. It's not the carnal freedom of the world refers to, which is really no freedom of all at all, but it's just bondage to sin. So what is this freedom and where does it reside? Well, the freedom that Paul is talking about, well, I'll just, I'll read what Luther says. He said, Paul is speaking of a far better liberty or far better freedom. The liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, not by, not from material bonds and not from Babylonian captivity and not from tyranny of political enemies, but from the eternal wrath of God. Okay. Now, I think up to this point, I asked you the question, well, what does he mean by freedom? What freedom is he talking about? I assume most of you, especially if you're Christian, would know, would be able to answer that. He's talking about freedom from sin, freedom from the wrath of God. We've, you've heard that preached multiple times through Galatians. Okay, that wouldn't have surprised you, wouldn't have shocked you. You knew it wasn't political freedom. You knew it wasn't carnal freedom. You knew it was freedom from the wrath of God. Could have answered that. But this next question, and my point that I'm trying to get to this morning, is I think a harder question for Christians to answer. But it's very important. Where is your freedom located? How is it accessed? So you have this freedom. You believe that it's true. You know you're free from the wrath of God. So how do you access it? Where is it located? Where is it found? Do you know? Do you have an answer? This freedom is in your conscience. It's in your conscience before God. Your conscience is clear and quiet before God because you have no fear that there's wrath standing against you anymore. And this is what I'm trying to drive home this morning. Okay, so most earthly examples about biblical truths all have flaws, okay? So, but I hope this one will help you understand what I'm talking about. Pretend that you're a prisoner in jail, okay? You're sentenced to death because of your crimes, and you should be sentenced to death because of your crimes. doesn't matter what they were, but you're sentenced to death, and you're deserving of it because your crimes were awful. Well, then somehow someone else says, I'll pay this man's penalty, and I'll die for him. And so that man, he dies in your place. It's a familiar story that you can think of. This man, he dies for you in your place. And his, his freedom that he had is now transferred over to you. You're free to go. And you can live your life. But then let's say you never leave the jail cell. You just stay there. 
The door's unlocked. Nobody's holding you there anymore. You don't have a penalty to pay. There's no, no one making sure you stay in there. But you just keep staying there day after day after day. Well, in one sense, you're technically free, right? Because you're not going to go to death row. Nobody's coming to get you to take you to death row. Okay? So you're free from that. The death penalty was already paid by this other man on your behalf, so no one's coming to take you. But in another sense, you're not really free in the fullest sense. Yes, the penalty's been paid, but you're still living like a prisoner in the jail cell. And this is how so many Christians live. And that's how some of you are living right now. You know that Jesus has paid for your sins. You've heard it hundreds and hundreds of times. And you believe it, in a sense. And you have faith. You have real faith. You know there's no wrath for you. That when you die, you will be with Jesus. But Satan keeps telling you, and you keep believing, that you're too bad and you can't get out of the jail cell. And so you live in your conscience as a prisoner, as if there's still wrath of God standing against you. Even though it's been swallowed up and paid for by Christ. See, this is one of the most key doctrines of the Christian life, that if you don't understand, you don't really understand what Christ has purchased for you. Yes, Jesus died for your sins. Yes, he took the wrath and the penalty. It doesn't stand against you. But it's not some figurative thing that just has implications once you die. Because then you won't be punished for your sins. It means you're free today. In your conscience before God, there's zero anger towards you if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, there's zero wrath towards you. God will never again be angry towards you, and he will forever be merciful towards you when your heart, when you have given your heart to him and have faith in him. That is to say that when your conscience is confident of these truths, when you're confident that it's for freedom that Christ has set you free, this is the freedom that Jesus has purchased for you. Yes, it's freedom from my sins. Yes, it's freedom from the wrath of God. And I'm confident in my conscience of that freedom. I'm the child of the free woman. I'm loved by God. God is not angry at me anymore. He actually delights in me, and I believe that. You see, some of you don't live like that. In fact, oftentimes, we don't live like this. And this, uh, this I think, is the thing that Satan attacks more in Christians than anything else. See, Christians, youth, often think, well, Satan, when he's tempting us, he's tempting us to do something bad. So he's tempting you to be bitter, He's tempting to, you know, to say something that you shouldn't, or look at something, or, or do a certain sin. And yes, Satan does tempt us in those ways. But I believe one of the number one ways that the enemy tries to attack Christians is to take away your freedom of conscience before God. Now, why would I say that? Well, I'll spend the next bit explaining and trying to make that argument but i'll start by saying this if satan can take away your freedom of conscience before god 
the freedom that Paul's talking about, the freedom that Christ wins. See, he can't make Jesus' blood ineffective. He can't stop God's love from actually being towards you or for you. He can't stop you from actually being a child of the free woman. He can't make the wrath of God come back upon you because it's already been dealt with by Christ. But here's what he can do. He can tempt you to stay in the jail cell. And that's the next best thing that he can do. You've been washed by Christ. Well, at least I can get him to not live like he's a Christian. At least I can try to get him to not really believe that all the implications of this. That's what he wants, and that's what he's after. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. It's for freedom, for freedom, that Christ has set you free. You're actually free before God. The free conscience before God is one of the sweetest gifts that God gives us Christians, and Satan will do anything to take it away from you. See, I would venture to guess that many of you that have been Christians for a while, you've had moments where you've been overwhelmed by this freedom. And very thankful for it. And your conscience before God felt so free. You were so confident of God's love and you were amazed, like literally amazed and dumbfounded by God's grace and his love that he has for you. You've, surely, many of you have had times like that. The gospel was so potent to you in that moment. Maybe it was the day you were saved. Maybe you were already Christian for a while, but you were overwhelmed by your sin and you heard the gospel or you reminded of the gospel and the grace of God overwhelmed you and your soul. And I remember when I was in college one time listening to a sermon on the second floor of our townhouse. I was blown away about how God could love a sinner like me. That all this sin that I have and all these failures, that God still chose me and died for me so that I could be freed and forgiven, freed from the wrath of God, but also free to be able to walk in righteousness and no longer live as a slave to sin. And I remember weeping on the second floor of this townhouse, and I remember feeling so thankful that God would forgive me. And maybe you've had times like that. It could have been during a book that you were reading, or a sermon you heard, or a counseling session with the pastor, or, or scripture that you meditated on, or lyrics of a song. And were you so thankful and overcome by the grace of God? Can you think of a time like that? Okay, now let me ask you, from your experience, what happened? What happened since then? Where did that freedom go? Do you still feel it? I'm not talking about warm, fuzzy feelings, okay? Not asking where warm, fuzzy feelings went. I'm talking, do you have the confidence that you, I'm talking about the confidence that you're, you're loved by God and that you're free before him because you're confident that Christ paid for your sins. You know, sometimes in, in more reform circles, which I would include us in, there's a good desire to try to protect the holiness of God because in our day, the church in our country, they don't, we, we often don't treat God as holy. And so out of a good desire to protect the doctrine, protect that doctrine, God's holiness, we can end up talking about ourselves so poorly 
and how God is so great to kind of maintain this distinction between God's holy and we're not holy and he's like far above us. And so that's our goal. We're trying to just say like God is so far above us. So we just talk like, oh, I'm just I'm just a wretched sinner. Well, and God is holy and perfect. God is so much higher than me and it's amazing that he would save somebody so small and so dirty and sinful as me. And we kind of like talk bad about ourselves because like it's, it's some way to attempt like just to remind ourselves you're just so much lower than God, which is coming from a good desire. And is true that we are like God is far superior than us. But the danger of that is that sometimes we can talk in such a way that people forget that the freedom that they actually have before God and the freedom that Christ purchased for us. And so, and then passages like Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 just make little sense because we think, well, we're so bad, how could we ever even think about coming before God? But Hebrews 4, God says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Paul says, stand firm. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You can and you should, as a Christian, have confidence that you can draw near to the throne of God, the throne of grace, and expect to receive mercy and find help. This is what God wants you to have as a Christian. This is why he tells you that in Hebrews 4. He wants you to be confident that you have a high priest who paid for your sins and who understands your temptations and so that you will come near to him with confidence to find mercy and grace. But for many of you, that's not the case. Your conscience isn't free, and so your conscience is often weighed down by guilt. You feel like you're failing. You're failing as whatever it is. You're failing as a mother. You get angry with your kids, and you feel guilty before God. You raise your voice with your kids. You failed again in some way. You feel guilty. You got drunk again and feel like you should be back in the jail cell because you still haven't kicked that habit. You looked at immoral stuff with your eyes again. Kids, you lied to your parents for the hundredth, for the thousandth time. You couldn't control your anger against your siblings. You got spanked again. The point is you sinned and it was wrong. There's no argument from me that it was wrong and it's terrible. It shouldn't have done it. You did it and now you feel guilty. And so now what you do, you go back into the jail cell. And you sit there and you mope around feeling guilty like you need to punish yourself extra for your sins. Because you're afraid that if you don't feel guilty enough or you punish yourself for a long enough period of time, that can only mean that you just don't care about your sin you don't take your sin seriously. And Satan loves to tell you that. You did that again? Really? You know Jesus died and set you free and yet you did that again? Haven't you been struggling with that for a decade? You'd think that 
as a Christian, you'd be better now. You'd have all that fixed. You must be a bad Christian. Think of how disappointed God is with you. Yeah, he loves you, but he probably has a low level of annoyance with you. Why don't you go back into the jail cell and sit there and prove to God that you really feel bad about your sin? That you, in fact, deserve to be in still in that jail cell. Jesus didn't really die for you to go out and sin like that, did he? You're supposed to have the Holy Spirit in you. And you still did that? Really? I wouldn't come out of the jail cell anytime quickly. You need to sit there a good while and feel guilty. Or else you're just some antinomian who just thinks that you can sin and sin and sin and sin and grace will abound. God will forgive you. And you spend so much of your time in your Christian life feeling guilty and feeling like a failure and feeling like God is upset with you because you still sin. But he's not. It is for freedom that Christ sets you free. There is no condemnation for those who are left in Christ Jesus. Now that either means there's no condemnation or it doesn't mean that. But I'm telling you, it means there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, there is zero condemnation left standing before you. Zero condemnation from your father. Zero, nilch, it's all gone. And I want your conscience to actually believe that. To actually live like that. So what does that mean? Joel, are you telling me that I should just never feel any shame for my sin and I should never confess my sin to God and I can just do whatever I want now? Of course that's not what I'm saying. But when you do sin, I want you to do what 1 John 1 and 2 says for us. It starts in verse 8. It'll be on the screen. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If, so that already acknowledges that you have sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, surprise, that's you. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not ours only, but also the sins of the world. If you do sin, when you do sin, I want you to be confident that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And when you do sin, instead of going back into the cell to serve some time in some attempt to pay for your sins before God, which never actually works in the first place, and never actually making yourself feel guilty, never actually makes you not feel guilty later, Instead of doing that, I want you to do what Hebrews 4.16 says, and then you should memorize it. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive that we say mercy and find grace in the help of time of need. When you sin, I want you to go directly to God for help. I want you to confess it to God and thank the Father 
for sending an advocate who paid for your sins, and to boldly and with confidence ask for help, knowing that God loves you, loves to hear your prayers, loves to give you mercy and grace. And then I don't want you to go back into the prison. Instead, I want you to walk with a free conscience, confident that God's paid for even that sin. And you think, well, if I don't take my sin seriously, it's just going to make me make excuses for my sin. I'm just going to do whatever I want. Or, Joel, that's going to lead to some abuse. People are going to abuse that. Some husband or mother is just going to keep sinning and then just say, well, God forgives me. Well, you're wrong. You're not wrong that some people might abuse that. But that's not what I'm talking about. That's why Paul mockingly says in Romans, should we sin that all the more so grace can abound? Some may abuse that, but here's how I know you'll actually believe this rightly. The Christian who believes this rightly will not only confess it to God, but if there's some sin that you're regularly struggling with, you'll confess it to your brothers and sisters because your conscience is free. It doesn't matter what Ben thinks or what Matt thinks, what Theo thinks. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about me. I know I'm free before God. Some guy might abuse this, might abuse God's grace and and keep sinning, never feel guilty about it and just say, God forgives me. But he's not really free because he wouldn't want anybody else to know his sin ever. See, the man who understands this freedom, yes, he's sinned. And maybe he's sinned regularly about something. But he opens up to his brothers and he's asking his help and he confesses to his wife. See, I want you to actually be free. Your sin is awful, okay? I'm not minimizing your sin. Yes, when you sin, you feel guilty. I want you to take that directly to God. Your Savior is greater than your sin. God's love for you is greater than your worst sins. And he's not sitting there just angry, ready to punish you. He's already punished Christ. And so you should not feel sorry or guilty for feeling free in your conscience. It's one of the hardest things to fight for. Satan will want to make you feel bad, but you owe him no apology or explanation. This is something that you have to fight for, though, okay? Because your conscience, for some of you, you've trained your conscience to just, like, you have to feel guilty for so long that the idea of your conscience being free before God will just feel wrong to you. Luther says, our conscience must be trained to fall back on the freedom purchased for us by Christ. You actually have to train your conscience. I am free. I'm free. God is not mad at me. God loves me. I can tell him my sin. I can tell my small group my sin. I can confess to my wife. I can confess to my husband. I can ask for forgiveness. And I don't have to sit around and feel terrible for five days in order to prove to God that I'm really serious about my sin. You must stand firm, as Paul says, 
because this doctrine is so easily lost in the hearts of Christians. Multitudes of Christians know that their sins are paid for, and yet they live in a jail cell. But you will not actually get better from your sin if you just live in a jail cell. Somebody's You don't grow in godliness living in the jail cell. Satan is happy to slow your sanctification down by getting you to waste your time in that jail cell. That's not actually how you put your sin to death, though. You don't put your sin to death and grow in godliness and get sanctified by sitting in the jail cell and moping around about your sin and feeling bad for yourself. You want to actually put your sin to death? Then live as a person who's actually free from it and not a slave to it. You shouldn't be surprised that you're a slave to your sin, that you keep doing the same thing when you live like a prisoner. See, it seems contrary to reason and logic because if I'm going to get over my sin, I need to make myself feel guilty, and that'll show God that I'm really serious about this. And it can kind of seem like something a mature Christian would do, like, oh, I'm really lamenting over my sin for a long time because I take it really seriously. You might think that that's mature. But actually, the person who's always, always dwelling on their sin all the time, and there's times to dwell and consider your sin, but like just, oh, I sinned, I'm going to consider it, I'm just going to beat myself up over it for forever. That person's actually proving their immaturity. Why did I say that? Because because what that person's saying, that person's saying, Jesus, you didn't do enough. Jesus, you didn't do enough on the cross to free me from my sin. And so I'm going to pay what's left. You did a good job. You started it. I'm going to finish it by feeling bad and and punishing myself. I'm going to spend time in the jail cell, and and then finally I'll be free from my sin. That's foolishness, that's silly, and that's immature. And there's no freedom from sin in thinking like that. Oftentimes God will let you live like that, and you'll go down that path, and your life will just be dry. And eventually, by God's grace, and hopefully for a few of you this morning, you'll continue on that path, and you realize this is not working. And you'll be reminded of the gospel that Jesus paid for all your sins and that the Heavenly Father is happy with you. Yes, you sin. Yes, you're still trying to put off the old flesh, but you're free. There's no more penalty needed to be paid. You can enjoy that freedom that Christ has secured for you. Enjoy the fact that God actually loves you, that he enjoys you, that he wants to be with you. He takes pleasure in you, He wants and gives you permission to come to the throne of grace with confidence and ask for help. Even right after you sin, like immediately after you sin. There's no waiting period. It's that simple. There's nothing sweeter than knowing you're free before God. Don't live in a jail cell. Don't be like the guy whose crimes are paid for. 
For some of you, like I said, this is going to be harder. But tell your small group, say, I live in a jail cell all the time. I feel guilty all the time about my sin. And I've tried to, tried to believe what Joel said, but it just feels wrong. Can you help me? This is what Christ secured for you. So don't spit on it and say, nah, it's not enough, or I prefer the jail cell. I was going to say more on the other verses, but I really think that this truth is so important for us to have a free conscience before God that I'm just going to stop here for right now. So go home today. Feel free in your conscience before God because you actually are. He is not mad at you. Cling to God and know that he paid for your sins. It's for freedom you've been set free. So stand firm and fight for that. Whenever you start feeling guilty, remind yourself, no, Jesus died for this. I'm free. Don't submit to a yoke of slavery. He wants you to live in that freedom. So don't throw back in his face and go live in a jail cell, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your help. We do ask for your help to believe this stuff because it it goes against so much reason and logic and it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem fair at all that we would sin and you would still love us. It doesn't seem fair that we would still sin and not need to make up for it and pay for it before you, like we owe you something. But Father, help us not believe those lies from Satan as if we have to owe you something that Christ didn't pay enough for. Help us remember that Christ paid for all of it. And for your consciences to not feel guilty before you, but to enjoy our freedom with you. And would that freedom allow us to actually grow and put our sin to death? And then when we do sin, would you continue to remind us that we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and that we can go with confidence to you and not find you telling me, I told you so, not find you telling us, seriously, again, but being patient with us and kindly leading us to repentance. Whether that be over six days or six months or six years or six decades. Father, we love you and we thank you for our freedom. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.